Hello, hello, and welcome to another podcast episode of Overpowering Emotions, where I talk all things big emotions, emotion regulation, resilience. Today is part two of my recast from my episode with Dr. Jeremy Sharp, where I'm on the Testing Psychologist podcast talking about differentiating ADHD and autism. Today is part two, where we will wrap that up, and then I will next week hop back into my comorbidities uh, with anxiety. Hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Testing Psychologist podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy Sharp. This is part two of my interview series with Dr. Caroline Bozanko. She is talking with me about differential diagnosis of ADHD and autism spectrum disorder. Last time we covered a lot of background and we dove deep into criterion A of the ASD symptom list. And today we're going to continue that. So we dive deep into criterion B, and then we spend a lot of time talking about the assessment process, how it overlaps and how it's different when you've got ADHD and ASD in the mix. Uh, We also talk about Uh, gender differences and the pros and cons of looking at diagnosis through that lens and many other things. So as always, lots to take away from this episode. Really enjoy talking with Caroline because there are plenty of concrete ideas and strategies that you can actually put into practice. Also some resources in the show notes. So Caroline does a more in-depth training on this topic and you can access that through the link in the show notes, and she was kind enough to provide a coupon code for 25% off the training if you use the code TTP25. So definitely check that out. And before we transition to the conversation, if you are a practice owner or aspiring practice owner and would like some accountability and support, uh, at the time this goes live, there might be a spot or two left in each level of my mastermind groups. So the groups sit at the intermediate, advanced, and beginner levels. So something for everybody, no matter your stage of development with your practice. And I'd love to chat with you to see if one of those groups could be a good fit. It's group coaching, there's accountability, there's support, connection, all good stuff. So you can go to the testingpsychologist.com slash consulting and sign up for a pre-consulting call. All right, let's get to part two of differentiating ADHD and ASD. Hey, Caroline, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Yes, yes. I'm excited for part two of our conversation about differentiating autism and ADHD. We covered a lot the first time, but there is still a lot more to cover. And to that end, I think uh, it makes sense to just dive right back into it. Um, If I remember right, we wrapped up last time uh, with a discussion of the criterion A um, items, you know, symptoms yeah. of autism and the overlap there with ADHD. So, uh, what do you think? Do we just pick up with criterion, criterion B? And, B. Yep. Yeah. We'll jump it. right in there. Yeah. We'll All go right. there. Uh, there is always so much. And I know that I'm just scratching the surface, but hopefully it, it gets people thinking, you know, of different things to think about. Uh, criterion B is, is 
an important one. I find that so many, whether it's parents or teachers or clinicians, will use criteria A. Our ADHD kiddos will look very autistic based on criteria A. And I covered all of that last time. So B can really help us figure out what's what. Um, so I mean, there's still a lot of overlap, of course, but this is usually where I find there's not actually necessarily information to support an autism diagnosis with our ADHD kiddos. Uh, of course, there's some uniquely autistic traits, you know, uh, excessive, unusual fascination with different things, um, repetitive movement, hand flapping. I mean, some ADHD kids will hand flap, but there are some classical sort of autistic traits there. Um focusing on one part of a toy, the peering through the side, you know, spinning the wheel on the cars, those things are the classical things that I think we would all look for. But they're also classical male sort of mm. presentations of the autism. Um, so there is still some overlap that we do see, um, but usually, again, for different reasons. I talked a lot about that last time for criteria A. So for example, our ADHDers um, and our autistic kids can be really, really rigid that rock brain that we talk about. Um, but again, it's looking at the function of those rigidities. So a lot of the ADHDers, parents will talk about how that child actually thrives with structure, thrives with routines, thrives with predictability, but it's because it's supporting their executive functioning deficits. And so that's usually why we see that rock brain for those kiddos, right? Um, there can be anxiety, and I'm not also talking about anxiety. That's a whole other episode, teasing out what's ADHD, anxiety, right? But, but yes. really, oftentimes, that rock brain is because we're supporting the executive functioning deficits. So they might need everything to go back in the exact same spot because otherwise they're going to have no idea where they left it and they're going to get in trouble or they're going to waste hours trying to find it, right? So it's supporting their executive functioning deficits versus a rigidity. Um, or I need to do things in the same order, otherwise I'm going to forget what to do right? Um, mm -hmm. I'm going to miss a step. And they get so much corrective feedback that anxiety does start creeping in. But a lot of times it's to support those executive functions. Um, autistic kiddos will have those rituals, not all the time, but a lot of the time they're non-functional. There's no reason, no how. I was talking with a kiddo a couple of weeks ago about like, you're having trouble. You keep getting in trouble with this routine. Why don't we do it, switch a couple of things so we can do it this way? And they just couldn't understand. No, I've always done it this way. This is the way, but it's not functional. They don't see it. It's just that rigidity or or a lot of sort of superstitious behaviors sometimes. Everything will fall apart. So that's where the anxiety starts coming in. Um, so I see non-functional rituals, non-functional lists. You know, um, ADHDers will keep lists, but it's to help support their working memory. Whereas other kiddos will keep lists of all the Marvel characters or all the Disney princesses or the time schedules of the train or whatever that is. It's, it's not very functional. Um, but like I said, if there is anxiety in there, it can look more rigid, non-functional sort of rituals because of whatever else is going on. So that's where we have to start teasing apart that anxiety. Um, and, and oftentimes with our ADHD or that anxiety starts kicking in just because of the executive functioning deficits that we're seeing. So forgetting instructions, forgetting homework, um, forgetting to hand in their homework when they do, right? Um, whereas the autism, their anxiety is usually the biggest autistic anxiety 
uh, challenge that they have is this intolerance to uncertainty. And we know anxiety is all about, you know, being fearful of the uncertain and not, you know, not able to handle that uncertainty. But with autism, it's really this intolerance to uncertainty. And so they have this drive, they have to have sameness, right? Um, But they also have a lot of weird things too, weird phobias when we start looking at anxiety too, like men with beards or exposed wires or, you know, different things like that, that we wouldn't normally think about for our typically developing kiddos. Um, How kids respond to unexpected change can be a clue as well. So, um, How are they when they initiate a change versus someone else forcing a change on them? I mean, it's typical for any kid. If you say, dude, I know you love swimming and and we wanted to go swimming today and I'm sorry we can't go swimming. I mean, every child is going to get upset with that, right? Um, But the slight, even the slightest unexpected change, even if it's a positive change, even if it's a dude, I know we're supposed to go to the dentist today, but we're not going to go to the dentist. We're going to go swimming, right? Even if it's an awesome change, that can be so overwhelming for the autistic kiddo. Whereas the ADHD would be like, awesome, this is fantastic. So we don't see the same sort of intensity of that that stress and that anxiety with our ADHD ears as we do with our autistic kiddos. Um, so flexibility with change is usually a good clue. Our ADHD ears, they like novelty. They like change. They like to mix it up. They look forward to going new places, right? Meeting new people. Um, and so just getting out of the monotony of of the everyday sort of life, the day in and day out is so important for them. The sameness gets so boring for them. That sameness can actually be quite distressing and depressing for our ADHDers, right? Whereas for our autistic kiddos, that sameness is soothing. They want everything same, 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 same. It They crave order. They crave predictability. They crave just knowing every minute of my day is totally predictable. So they, they often will plan things out, you know, before they happen. They like having those step-by-step guides, sort of manuals of how to do things or how my day is going to go. Whereas the ADHD or I mean, you could, they can make a plan for themselves. They can be given a plan, but they just go for it. They're not going to read it, right? They're just going to jump in and hope for the best. Actually, I just had a, 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 a experience last week. My husband and I went away. I had a work retreat and I saw, I was looking at desserts. I saw the word banana and I saw a picture of a pie somewhere else on the screen. Cause when I was looking, we we're just looking at the menu online and I assumed, Oh, great. Banana pie. So when we went, so so we, I didn't actually read the, what it was. So we went to the restaurant and it was not a banana pie and it took forever, like half an hour for them to set up this dessert. They brought in this huge trolley and there was a huge cooker, like a little stove that she had. And she, it was like a banana flambe. And I'm like, can we read the menu again? And no, there was a key lime pie. But so I just didn't take that two seconds to read the (laughs) description, right? And that's kind of the ADHD brain. They just jump in, even if they have that plan. And so that's why visuals are great for our autistic kids, but they're not so great for the ADHD kids. So they can have it. They know it's helpful, but it's really hard for their brain to follow that. Um, 
so there's those pieces. Um, black and white thinking, the overall, just being overly literal. Um, I love looking out for, you know, what do they find humorous? I use lots of different uh, materials to try to get engagement with them, um, just to see what they care about, what they think's funny. Um, so, I mean, looking at the picture on the ADOS, you know, just using things that I know we use within the assessment, I'm always talking about, oh man, I see something super funny on that picture. Just to see, you know, well, first of all, are they going to even respond to me? Are they going to mm-hmm. even care that I see something? Um, but but just see what they think is actually funny. And so if I say, oh, that, that little guy on the Niagara Falls going off over the barrel, that's so silly. And they're like, um, that's dangerous. <laughs> that over literal, you know, just um, I don't think it's funny, Caroline. Uh, I do a lot of jokes. I find that can be really helpful to differentiate. Again, there's no hard and fast rule. A lot of our autistic girls get sarcasm and understand that. But I do tell jokes and and see how they respond. So the ADHDers might still not get it. You still might need to explain it to them, but once they get it and you explain it, they laugh and they they see the humor in it. Whereas the autistic kiddos usually don't, right? Um, and so, um, like just the other day, I asked the joke, um, "What's the difference between broccoli and boogers?" Huh. And, the, and the kids like what? And I'm like, "Well, kids don't like to eat broccoli." <laughs> And so the kid, he got really upset and he's like, first of all, that's disgusting. And second of all, I do, I'm a kid and I do actually like broccoli. And so, he, so I was, you know, he's definitely autistic. He meets this, but I don't have the same reaction, right? The ADHD kid is like, ew, that's so gross. It's so funny, right? Um, but it's just that literal or, or dissecting everything, right? Like mm-hmm. that's not possible or, or whatever it is. So it's not to say they don't have a sense of humor. It's just different. And, and oftentimes parents will say, yeah, they get it. They get sarcasm. They get, you know, they have a sense of humor. Um, but it's usually their own sense of humor. They don't necessarily like those kinds of things. Um, I do with our autistic kiddos, I do see more of the sort of stereotypical, repetitive, robotic sort of language, you know, the monotonous voice kind of thing. But sometimes you really have to listen for it. Um, Oftentimes, those things I see more in the boys than I do the girls, but girls will often have little catchphrases. Um, So I had one, I remember she would laugh at my jokes, but it was kind of like, haha, that makes sense. But as I listened to her, everything, she was always saying, that makes sense, that makes sense, that makes sense. And so I start tallying, you know, how many times she's saying that repetitive catchphrase over and over. And I realized she really didn't understand what I was saying some of the time, but sometimes it was just her pat response. She didn't know what else to say in the situation. That makes sense. And that was kind of her transition into talking about something else. And so I see a lot of those little things. Um, Sometimes, actually, a lot of the kids will refer to people as humans, um, mm. or they'll just say, I, I, a lot of my boys lately, they'll say something or I'll say something that they think is funny. And so then they'll repeat it back to themselves. So even really, I had one kiddo, I mean, IQ 146, brilliant. He can talk about, even when I started doing the academic testing, he's like, is this really necessary? Like I am in grade seven doing grade 12 math. Is this necessary? (laughs) And I'm like, well, dude, yeah. But he did have, he did have that echoing, you know, I would Mm -hmm. say something and then he'd kind of chuckle to himself 
and then under his breath, repeat whatever it was that I said. Um, recently, I'd say since, you know, over since the holidays, so the past six weeks or so, um, I've had half a dozen boys say defying gravity out of the okay. blue at least more than once. And it's weird that that's their thing. I don't know if they're watching the same show, but but several of them have been talking about defying gravity and repeating it like three or four times throughout the, the session. So it's just really listening for those kinds of things. Um, repetitive stereotype stimming kinds of behaviors. So there could be motor, there could be verbal stims. Um, and for those who aren't really sure what stimming is, because I think we talk about those stims all the time, it's it's just a way to stimulate our senses. And so oftentimes it's to self-regulate. Either we're releasing all this built-up tension out of us, or it's to manage, uh, you know, any sensory overload that could be happening. Now, a lot of times we really got to listen and make sure we're getting clarification. Sometimes they even get videos. A lot of times parents will say, my kiddo has repetitive stimming behaviors, but it's really hyperactive sort of wiggle bottom, jiggling the leg, bouncing the leg sort of behaviors. And so it's really making sure we have a really good definition. Is it a hyperactive fidgety behavior or is it actually more of that stimming sort of repetitive behavior? Um, So we have to be really good behaviorists. We really have to get to the function of the behavior. I said it last time, I'm going to say it again. So we do see our ADHDers, they they will engage in repetitive behaviors to wake up their brain. It's to alerting their brain, right? That's why we see a lot of the hyperactivity. So they're stimulating themselves. That's their way to self-regulate. Um, for autistics, it's usually, I mean, they're all over the spectrum, which I'll be talking about in a second, but they they could be alerting their brain, but more often it's to self-soothe. It's to calm themselves down. It's to relax. And so we can look at how are they using those behaviors. Um, ADHDers also want to use up if they have excess energy. Sometimes they'll engage in these behaviors just so that they can use up all of that extra en- uh, energy. Whereas the autistic kid, again, it's about moving to relax myself, to soothe myself. So we really want to get to that internal experience. Um, Oftentimes the ADHDers don't even realize that they're engaging in those behaviors. Whereas oftentimes my autistic kiddos who are verbal, who are older, the younger ones probably have a harder time, but the older ones do say, actually, I am rocking. I am doing these things because I find it really calming. The ADHD kid is like, what, what I'm rocking. Like I didn't even know I was rocking. Um, so there's those pieces, excessive interests. We know happen for both our ADHD years and our autistic kiddos. ADHD years can easily hyper-focus. We talk about it all the time. So it can look like a special interest that we see in, in the autism. They're passionate. They're all in. Um, but they get bored and they satiate. And so they learn all about it or they have that initial excitement. And when that initial excitement sort of burns up, um, they hop onto the next thing, the next stimulating thing, right? And so mm-hmm. they're shifting they're shifting between those interests um, a little bit more, more frequently than we would expect our autistic kiddos to. Um, the autistic kiddos might focus on one thing until it's done, right? Until they've learned everything that they've learned, 
they can't direct their attention, even if they want to, right? They're just, that's that hyperfixation piece. And so I hear that a lot where they just can't stop themselves, even when they know they're done and they want to be done, they just got to keep going. And so it's, it's, that hyperfixation is reinforcing their brain and they just can't pull themselves away. Their pace is slow. Their, their, their pace is um, steady. Whereas ADHD, it's the buzzing excitement. And then we just see it drift off. Right. Um, The ADHD brain, it's like an energizer bunny, really. So like all in through the task until it becomes too boring or repetitive. And then the brain just shuts off and Mm. Kate, now I got to wake it up again. So um, we, d- we, we do see the shifting interest. There's a lot more flexibility. You know, if they're talking about something, you can interrupt them, even if they're super excited, right? They've got that buzzing energy. You can interrupt them. They might be disappointed, but they can move on. Um, unless it's screens, I find that can be challenging. But sure, sure. But there's lots of different things that they can talk about, right? It's that buzzing sort of energy. Whereas the autistic kiddo, it's harder to redirect. And I've had kiddos, you know, I had one recently, Rubik's Cube. He's all about the Rubik's Cube. And I'm like, hey, dude, we got to talk about something else. He's like, but no, I didn't finish talking about all these 10 different kinds of Rubik's Cubes that I need to talk about. I'm like, okay, well, we're going to put that on the shelf. You know, here's a checklist. We're going to do these three things. And he had such a hard time to shift away from that. Um, and so they do, we do see them shift interests, but usually not as frequently. They usually last, these interests usually last a little bit longer. We do see a lot more repetition where they'll read the same book 143 times or watch the same movie, you know, 26 times. So uh, I, I do find those kinds of things. And even when they do shift, like a lot of my girls, maybe their interests have shift, but there's a similar theme, you know, social justice or helping animals, for example. So they're way more enduring. And and for a lot of the women I've talked about, it's, or have talked to, it's become part of their identity. It's part of who they are, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that we can, you know, look at those types of things. Um, A lot of times these interests self- are a way to self-soothe with the autistic kiddos. It's just really relaxing. It's really calming. Um, Whereas the ADHDers, it's usually they become more excited, more excitable. And so we can start looking at a few of these different kinds of things. Um, Sensory sensitivities and interests, true for both. Um, Even though it's only explicitly outlined with our autistic kiddos and not for the ADHD, we have no idea why it's not in the DSM for our ADHD kiddos because we actually see more things like sensory interests in our ADHD kiddos than we do in our autistic kiddos. Hmm. So they're the ones who are constantly touching things and smelling things and licking things, right? So seeking out that sensory more than our autistic kiddos. And so mm-hmm. I have no idea why it's not in the DSM. It really should be. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this is interesting. So with the, for our autistic kiddos, it's usually compounding stimuli. So there might be a bad smell. Now there's a bright light. And now the noise, it's just too much. It's become too overwhelming for my nervous system. So it becomes that last straw. It becomes the tipping point. So I can't, I can't do it anymore. I can't focus anymore. It's too overwhelming. So that's when we see the emotional meltdown or shutdown. It's all pent up. It can be, it looks the same for the ADHD Uh, kiddo, but it's usually just one stimuli. One stimuli is enough to set them off. Um, And the meltdown, 
it's usually not from the sensory stimuli itself. It's from the emotional dysregulation because we know that's a core deficit of ADHD. So the stimuli triggers a big emotion that I can't handle. And so the meltdown comes from emotional dysregulation. It's not actually like the stimuli triggered that emotional meltdown, but it's the emotional piece that is really tricky. For the autistics, it's literally their nervous system is overloaded from the sensory input. So again, it's tricky to start teasing apart. That's why we want to get to their internal experiences because it looks exactly the same. Both loud noises, both emotional meltdown, but we got to look at what were those um, preceding sort of triggers for a lot of kids with autism. It's compounding. Um, And as they get older, they can talk about, I had one girl recently talk about the word green actually physically was painful for her. And she's like, I don't have any other word other than it's, it's painful. And so, I mean, that's not, that's kind of weird, right? So we're looking for those weird things. And and I, I use weird, I, I hate using words like that, weird compared to what, right? But we don't see it often in our neurotypical kiddos. Whereas a, a loud noise, I mean, the best of us, even myself, anybody, if if it's just too much, we're trying to focus, it, bec- it can stress us out, right? And so that brings me to their developmental profile. And I think that this is really important to consider when we look at everything. So one thing that we got to think about is the ADHD brain develops the exact same way as neurotypical brains. It's just delayed, right? There's a 30% delay. So oftentimes everything that we're seeing with ADHD, it's within the typical developmental trajectory, that profile, but it's in excess. And you hear it all the time. You know, parents will say, I was just like him, right? All kids get bored with things that they don't want to do. All kids avoid things that are hard and they don't want to do. All kids are inattentive at some point, right? And so we hear these all kids, all kids, all kids. Yeah, they're just being a kid, right? Um, So that's all true. Yeah, they all get overly silly when they're with friends and, you know, a big party and they're overtired and it's hard to get started on things that are really boring. So those challenges are true for all kids, but with ADHD, it's in excess. So when we look at the normal sort of bell curve, um, the, the, it, the ADHD follows the neurotypical sort of curve of development. It's just way higher or way lower, right? So it's either everything, fun, 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 stimulating, go, 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 hard to stop. You know, I just, I just got to focus on that to absolutely nothing. Brain shuts down. It's so boring. I can't do anything, right? And so um, a lot of the things that we see in the ADHD profile, we would see in maybe a younger child, right? Like being distracted, jumping from activity to activity, getting bored, having trouble focusing, hitting Johnny in the face when he takes a toy away from me, like all the things that we would see in preschoolers, for example, that impatience, doing risky things like walking off of a ledge, not realizing they're going to get hurt. All of those things we would see possibly in a younger child. It's it's their impulses. They're exaggerated and their ability to control those impulses are sort of minimal, right? And so there's that impulsive sort of quality to everything I talked about last time, like their social interactions. So the ADHDers engage in quote unquote, you know, a typical way of being as a child would, but it it could be disruptive, you know, for 
for a four-year-old, it's okay, but for a 12-year-old, now it's disruptive. So we call these sort of negative behaviors because they're in excess. They disrupt our social interactions, right? Like if they're interrupting. We don't hear the same sorts of things from parents with autistic kiddos, right? It's usually my friend has an autistic son and I see these behaviors or my nephew has autism and I see these sorts of behaviors. It's not all kids have these behaviors. Their profile is wonky. And so there's no predicting what it's going to look like. So the more developmental delays they have in many more areas, ADHD might have a couple, but with autism, they usually have way more markers and it's way more severe. So it's a whole suite of neurological differences and we don't know what it's going to be. It could be gross motor, fine motor, sensory, attention, social communication, emotion regulation, executive functioning. ADHDers do have those, but we find the more hits that you have on all of those different markers, the more severe it is, the more perseverative kiddos are, the more stereotypical behaviors, the more splinter skills, we're looking at autism, right? And so um, our, our autistic kiddos often are lacking what we call positive behaviors. So our ADHD have those negative, excessive, disruptive behaviors. Our autistic kiddos are lacking some of these positive behaviors. So nurturing relationships, for example, I see that especially a lot in a lot of my older girls and women, right? They want to have these friendships, but it's so effortful to put in the work to nurture those relationships. Um, And so the big thing, you know, when I'm looking at the developmental profile, we just don't know what an autistic kiddo is going to look like. We have a pretty good idea what an ADHD kiddo is going to look like. And so, yes, they're all different, but we still have a, a, a pretty good idea. But with autism, do they like touch? Do they need firm touch? Do they need to hide and curl into a ball or do they need to spin, 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 spin to self-regulate? Do they want to line up cars? You know, do they want to do a math worksheet? I mean, those are some of the basic sort of behavioral things, but I also look for these big splinter skills. So kiddos who can never remember their classmate's name or their teacher's name, but they can remember the name of every bridge in town, That's kind of wonky. That's a huge splinter skill, right? And so they can do it amazingly in one area, but the exact same sort of skill in another area, they just can't do it. They can speak eloquently, beautifully at one minute, and they can't even string two words together at another minute, you know, especially if they're feeling stressed out, for example, they might not be able to say hello to a friend but they can go up onto a stage, you know? So we see this huge sort of wonkiness in the profile. Um, They might have really strong morals and want to defend the rights of animals, but totally disregard how their peers are feeling, right? Or Mm -hmm. or, or not Mm -hmm. even carrying them. So when we look at the two, again, it's the ADHD with that impulsive sort of under-regulated profile. And with autism, I mean, it could be under-regulated, but oftentimes it's over-regulated. And so now I'm really rigid. I'm really fixated, you know, all of those kinds of things going on. Um, I I can get into the motivation piece as well. That's another big difference that I see between ADHD and autism. Um, With ADHDers, we know if they're motivated, they're going to jump right into it, right? It's going to be awesome. This is going to be so much fun. I can't wait to do it. And they're gone before you've even 
given the instructions or they're gone before they've even thought about what the consequences are. But for the autistic, they could have all the motivation in the world, but it's so hard just to get going because they really have to get their head wrapped around it. They have to process. Um, what do I have, you know, where do I start? What do I need? Right. Um, so again, it's that manual that they sort of need. Um, and we see too, if they're not motivated, I mean, with, we see the medications can be really helpful with our ADHDers, whereas the medication isn't quite so helpful with our autistic kiddos. So looking at that motivation piece can be really helpful as well. Um, that's a lot to say. I, I don't know if you have any questions or if I can just keep on going. Well, I just yeah. want to highlight that the way you explain that makes a lot of sense with the ADHD developmental profile. It's almost like you're just, you're taking two bell curves that are superimposed on one another and shifting one to the side, right? Like it's a similar process. It just uh, falls in a different time frame, typically behind, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whereas, yeah, I like that visual. And then the autistic developmental profile is a little more um, chaotic, maybe is a good word for it, or it's, yeah, falling kind of outside the typical yeah. developmental process. Yeah, that makes sense. That absolutely makes sense. And I, I do want to make a fine distinction, maybe just to um, clarify that if I understand you right, it's not, you're not necessarily saying that ADHD brains are structurally the same as neurotypical brains, but the developmental profile is very similar just on a different time. It, exactly. Yeah. And I think I talked a little bit about the brain last mm -hmm. time. So we do see a lot of differences in neurotypicals, but a lot of overlap in the autistic and ADHD brain. So yeah, very similar um, pathways. And so there's alterations in the structure and the function of the brain that is mm -hmm. very different from neurotypicals. So yeah, it's just sure. all about because we don't have brain scans. Um, it's all about, yeah, what can we see looking for those subtle differences that we see behaviorally, because that's what we got, right? So right. yeah, just in how it presents itself. Um, great. I didn't talk about and I'm not going to have time to talk about both autism and ADHD. And we know if you've got autism, chances are pretty good. You also have ADHD. I think um, that's a whole other conversation is when is it just pure ADHD or pure autism, but what happens if you've got both? Because I think that's where things really get tricky. We can see the ADHD so much sooner, so much easier. And so that's why kids that that diagnosis is usually made first and the autism doesn't come until later on in life. Mm. Um, but it gets really complex. We didn't even get into, you know, what if you've got an ADHD gifted kiddo or if we add the anxiety, you know, so that's a whole other complex piece um, mm -hmm. to think about. I do have a two day training that goes through all of that because mm. they, there are so many different pieces um, that you have to think about. But I just want to keep that in everybody's mind too, because oftentimes the ADHD, if you've got ADHD and autism, the ADHD completely overshadows the autism. And so mm -hmm. we often will miss it. And so that's why even now I'm getting 50 and 60 year olds who are coming and saying, I think I'm autistic, but I was always ADHD because, you know, um, maybe they are wanting sameness and don't want to, you know, are really socially um, anxious, but the ADHD, the chattiness of them, and then, you know, this, 
part of the brain that seeks novelty, right? Like it can overshadow the autism. Um, so that's a whole other, I, I'll give you the link to the training program if anybody wants to do that, but uh, there is so much yeah. more to think about right now. It's just focusing on just these two, because I know it gets complex. And if people are thinking about what about this and what about that? Well, you know, these are some of the things. Um, one thing I noticed too, um, well, and, and I'll get into some of the assessment pieces. Um, so maybe first I'll just go into the gender differences um, briefly. Yeah, I think that would be great. There's so okay. much discussion around gender okay. differences. Yeah, yeah, and there's so much discussion. There's so much work on on the gender differences, and a lot of it is because the DSM doesn't actually capture the female presentation of autism, right? So all of our assessment tools and criteria are based on male samples, largely. And so we have a lot of women who are missed, you know, they're on this invisible sort of end of the spectrum, because A, we don't know what it looks like, and B, they're masking, they're camouflaging all their autistic traits. And so the autism often doesn't show itself for a lot of them until life becomes unmanageable, right? Until uh, like a lot of the teenage girls, I see them when they're teenagers, just because of the social complexities are now beyond what they've been able to cope with. Um, but even so, so many of them are such good internalizers that it just looks like anxiety, right? And so when it's unmanageable, it just looks like anxiety. And so they're getting that diagnosis. Um, I actually hate all of the gender comparison talk, though, I got to say, because uh, what people don't also talk about is the fact that boys and girls have different brains in the first place. Autism aside, boys and girls have different brains. So we're, of course, we're going to see differences just by being male or female. We're going to see differences. And so it's not about the sex differences in autism, right? It, it's not related to autism at all. It's related to are you a boy or are you a girl? And so we know the female brain, for example, develops more quickly. So those executive functioning deficits that we see both in ADHD and autism, they're not as deficited, you know, <laughs> later on. Although I would say women are more deficited just because there's higher expectations. It's, you know, we we let it slide if a boy interrupts, but if a woman does, like hold, hold your horses there, right? We have a different sort of perspective. Um, so, so, but because their brain is developing more quickly, their autistic characteristics aren't going to be as severe as they are for our boys, right? And um, so we got to look at that. Their awkwardness is not going to be as acceptable as boys, but girls have more socially developed brains. They are just more social, right? Um, and so we, we've got to think about those. In the younger years, boys tend to be louder. They tend to be more behavioral than girls. And so, of course, they are seen more, right? Because they're presenting way more behaviorally. Girls still might be stimming, but girls might not be the big, loud, you know, hand flapping, the very obvious stuff. It could be chewing inside their, their cheek. I actually had a girl whose hmm. inside cheek was just shredded because she was just doing that, um, eating it, the inside of her cheek or pushing their toes. Like right now, I'm sitting here pushing my toes right? You can't see my feet, but you wouldn't know if I had my hands flapping or was doing rocking, you'd be able to see that. So there's really subtle things that they might be doing that's not as obvious. Like I said, girls are just more social, social than boys in the first place. They have 
better social language. They have more empathy. They can recognize how people are feeling better, right? They they are more socially motivated most of the time. Um, they're more nurturing and engaging in comforting behaviors. So all those things that we think about on the ADI, you know, or the ADOS that we're looking for, girls just meet the criteria of social success better because they have a girl brain, right? They, they are, are more social in that way. They're better at noticing things, at analyzing things, and they will sit and observe. How do people interact? How are they, like, what are they saying? How are they holding their body? Where are they, their eyes looking, right? They're way better at analyzing and imitating behaviors than boys are. And that's why we see girls masking and camouflaging so much more. It's that's how the girl brain works, right? Um, so boys don't really sit and observe and analyze like girls do. They just barge in, right? They just barge in or or, or walk away completely. Um, they're not as socially motivated as girls, so they might not even care to try to fit in, right? They might not care to try to appease people, you know, and, and a lot of my um, high IQ males, boys, teens, men that I've talked to, they do come across a little bit more arrogant, you know, and, mm-hmm. and part of that is just the brain differences. Um, a lot of girls, most girls do want to connect. They do want to have those friendships, right? And so they are often more socially successful. Um, and a lot of, when we look at the research, the quality of their relationships are very similar to neurotypical girls. They might not have as many friends, right? But it's not much lower than neurotypical girls. Um just going back to that imitation piece, I mean, our girls become such great imitators and chameleons that they would be great actresses or psychologists, really, right? And and because we're, as psychologists, we're analyzing people's behaviors all the time. Um, and so that masking piece just becomes so much more prevalent in the girls. Um, it becomes a problem over time, though, right? Because they don't know who they are anymore. Um so they're always looking for creative ways, you know, um, to, to how do I appear normal? That's really important for them. Um, play is often, it looks, girls have strong play skills, way stronger than boys. So play usually looks really good with interests. They, they don't usually tend to have sort of um, outlier interests. Oftentimes they are, they might have special interests, but they're gender appropriate, you know, they might be into the teeny bop boy group or animals or, you know, a lot of their interests can be really similar and look very acceptable. Um, The difference though, and this is what we got to start doing, not comparing boys to girls, we need to start comparing our potentially autistic girls to neurotypical neurotypically developing girls. So they might have similar interests, but our autistic girls it's to excess, right? That their level of knowledge of that boy band and when they were born and where they were born and, you know, everything that they did for their hobbies, it's just far beyond what our neurotypical girls would be doing. Um, And so it might be appropriate, but it's too much. And so that's what we need to start looking at. Um, The repetitive behaviors obviously aren't as, as obvious as either that I've kind of already talked about that they do have a lot more internalizing challenges, right? So that's why we see a lot more anxiety and depression and those kinds of things. Um, What's interesting is boys do have more challenges with emotion regulation younger girls do as they get older, 
so and and that's when we start to see the masks cracking right and we we can mm-hmm. start seeing the diagnosis a little bit easier so you know there's all those things everything that i've already discussed um but we really got to stop thinking about comparing the boys to the girls because we're already missing the girls because we keep trying to base them compare them to boys it's really comparing neurotypical girls to our autistic girls um and you know that's where we're going to see the challenges Mm-hmm. Really. And so we so we have to have an understanding, and I'm going to be talking about this in the assessment, we have to have an understanding of what neurotypicals look like. Um, and I think that it's hard sometimes if you don't have your own kids or if your kids have gotten older. It was super easy when my kids are young because I'm like, oh, my gosh, you're brilliant. You look at all the things you can do because I'm so used to working with, you know, autistic kiddos or ADHD kiddos or learning uh, challenged kiddos, right? And so um, we still have to really have that idea. I was just consulting with someone um, yesterday who just did an autism assessment who was like, I don't know, like, it seemed appropriate, but wouldn't typically developing kiddo do that? And I'm like, see, you got to go watch other neurotypical kids. You got to know what's what's appropriate because with our girls, that's really what we got to focus on. So we got to get the autistic picture out of our mind and start comparing them to the neurotypical girl, right? And so um, in my training program, I I do actually, I'm going to have videos of neurotypically developing kids and autistic kids and ADHD kids. So we can start looking at those differences, but that's really what we need to start doing. Um, One thing, I mean, we still need so much more research, right? Looking at the autistic brain, Um, But we're actually seeing a lot of research right now that the autistic, even though I just said stop comparing girls and boys, but one thing we are seeing is the autistic girl's brain is very similar to the neurotypical boy's brain. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. So autistic boys, they're using different regions of the brain to process social interactions versus neurotypical boys. But when we're looking at the autistic girls, they're using the brain the same way as our neurotypical boys would. And so, again, comparing boys and girls, we don't want to do that. We want to compare the girls to the girls um, because they are using their brain very differently. Uh, We don't know why. It could be sex hormones. That's one thing that's been put out there. There's still so much to learn. Um, But I know that's just my little rant about we got to stop comparing them. But it's actually interesting, even when we get into trans stuff, um, I can't remember. I think it's trans males. So when they're before their transition, diagnosed autism, after the transition, they don't meet criteria anymore. Mm. So it's really interesting when we start thinking about that, right? And and just knowing, you know, if the autistic brain, female brain looks like the neurotypical, they're going to present more like a boy. And so they get along with boys a little bit better. They have more similar interests, right? They're um, just as nurturing as neurotypical boys and all of those kinds of things. Right. So although the ADHD girls like playing with boys too, cause they're way more fun. They're not just sitting around talking about girly stuff. I want to be up and like throwing a frisbee or all of those kinds of things. Um, but I think that there's a lot of, uh, things that we can start talking about are, um, even just, going into gender expression and gender identity, we we see a lot of differences in our neurodivergent population, higher rates of anorexia um, in our autistic girls than in our ADHD girls, um, bulimia and anorexia 
anorexia would be higher in the ADHD, but uh, we see more anorexia. So, I mean, there's all those different things that I think we could go into tangents with. Um, but I think we should start focusing probably on assessment so we can get through that. But anything about the boy-girl brain, I don't think it's anything new, but I just wanted to really highlight we got to start comparing NT girls with autistic girls. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot to that we could dive into there. Um, like you said, I don't know that this is the the episode to completely dissect gender differences in autism and ADHD. And you know, you raise an interesting point around um the this idea that, you know, boy girl brains are different and you know how that impacts the comparison. I mean, uh, thinking down that um you know, that line of reasoning, it's almost like, you know, why, why do that with any diagnosis, not just autism, you know, if we're, if we're going to look at things through that lens, um, it's a, it's a complicated, it's a complicated problem, right? <laughs> Cause you talk about, uh, and I'm just, I'm just voicing this. We don't, we're not going to solve it by any means, but you know, when we talk about comparing autistic girls or uh, you know, suspected autistic girls to neurotypical girls or boy, you know, and vice versa. It's the fact that both of these diagnoses are spectrums and many diagnoses are spectrums, right? They're more, um, yeah, they're not completely categorical. It's that becomes really challenging. I just want to validate that that becomes very challenging, right? So then it's the, the moving, target of what is neurotypical. So what are we comparing to? And it's, this is why our jobs are hard. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's what I'm going to end with. That's why our jobs are hard because, you know, it is hard to know exactly what's typical and what's not. And yeah, um, yeah, exactly. That's what come to us. Let's take a break to hear from our featured partner. I would love to tell you about the new Pfeiffer Assessment of Writing Interpretive Report available through PARI Connect, PAR's online assessment platform. It provides scores for all FAW subtests and includes detailed interpretations of index, discrepancy, and subtest scores. It offers strategies and recommendations tailored to each individual's age and scores and provides clinicians with data to create targeted, customized interventions. Learn more at parinc.com backslash FAW. Let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, and it is. And, and that's, you know, why I said last time, I don't think there's a pure ADHD or a pure autistic person, right? I think there's yeah. a little bit of everything. And even, even in neurotypicals, we have a little bit of inattentiveness. And, you know, I think that, yeah, yeah it's just at what threshold. It, it's really about when does it become impairing? Mm -hmm. That's why we have the DSM. If it's not impairing, same thing with ADHD. You might have all the symptoms, but if it's not impairing across two contexts, it's not a diagnosis, right? And so we got to look at that. And I'm often talking, um, you know, what is impairing? I'll be talking a little bit about this as we get into the assessment piece too, like stimming. Is it a big deal if you're flapping hands? Well, maybe in the context, mm -hmm. maybe it, it is you're losing your job because you're, you know, with clients who, but if not, you know, then is it actually a problem? There will be some stimming behaviors. And I think on the whole neuroaffirmative sort of movement, it's, 
why does it matter if I have a mm-hmm. special interest? Why does it matter if I have stimming behaviors? Absolutely. Why does it matter? It's It becomes a problem if it's impairing somehow. And so that, that's kind of what we need to look at. Um, but yeah, I think going into, I mean, there's so much still with assessment. I'm going to try to get through it all with the assessment mm-hmm. piece. I do have a couple of disclaimers. Um, one is we want to avoid diagnostic overshadowing because I see this all the time. And so that's where we're for other diagnoses. Oh, sensory processing challenge must be autism, even though we know the sensory piece is huge for ADHD as well, right? And so our accuracy is not going to be very good if we just assume we see sensory processing, for example, and assuming it's autism without looking at anything else. So we we don't want to do that. Um, and the ADOS and ADI, unfortunately, they're limited assessments, right? And so people get really fixated on getting a, a fixed diagnosis and concluding exactly what you're saying, that categorical, yes, you are autistic or no, you are not. And then they end up missing so much and that's overshadowing. So if we're doing assessments, I can't emphasize this enough. I know I said it last time. We have to look at both autism and ADHD. You cannot look at one without the other. Um, in my clinic, and it sounds like it's similar to your clinic, we work as a team. So um, most people, you know, I think everyone even listening probably has more experience working with ADHD than autism. I, th- I think that's part of the problem. But um, in my clinic, not everyone is an expert in autism, but as soon as they see some flags, they bring me in. So we're working as a team, right? Even if they no ADHD better, just to make sure nothing's getting missed. Um, And knowing, so knowing what ADHD looks like, what autism looks like, and what neurotypicals look like, that's going to be really important. Um, And so uh, we got to think critically and start looking at some of these subtle differences. And and, and I'm going to be talking about interpretation as well. So, you know, you, you just can't wait um, until you get more experience. I know uh, some of my clinicians right now, they've had all the training and they're just waiting for the next assessment to get a little mm. bit more experience. Looking at the, I'm like, no, go out there, watch YouTube videos, watch vlogs of these autistic people, right? You got to get out there and start observing people and and of, of ADHDers, of autistic people, of neurotypical kids. There's lots of things that you can be doing. Don't just wait from one assessment to the next. Um, so we've got the overshadowing, there's also diagnostic substitution, which I also see all the time too. So if you, again, sensory issues is just the big one. That's the easy one that I find becomes the problem. Um, and so um, it, it, the the substitution and overshadowing is very similar where we're either missing something or assuming it's one thing and not the other. So when we go through the process, we're just really remembering that there's so many things why a, a child or influencing why a child might present behaviorally, right? So we just got to make sure we're looking at the whole uh, context. We're not looking at a diagnosis. And I think a lot of us take mm. a diagnosis-centered approach. We cannot do that. So we're going in to look, yes, you do or do not have autism, right? We need such a broader assessment. We we can't just, and I see it all the time where people are just doing the ADOS and ADI and that's it. 
they're not looking at, at cognition. They're not looking at behavior or language or adaptive functioning or motor skills or sensory processing, considering trauma, looking at family history. All of those pieces are really important. What are these kids' strengths? What are their differences? What are their skills to work on? How do we optimize their success? I mean, those are parts of that we should be doing anyway. But if you're only doing one instrument or a couple of instruments to look at yes or no, that's a diagnostic centered approach. And we, we just want to avoid that. So we got to come into it with an open mind. We can't go into the assessment intent on finding a label, especially something like autism, right? Mm-hmm. So it's taking a trans diagnostic approach where we're looking at the lived experiences of the kiddos. That's going to be way more helpful anyways, when we get to intervention. So it's not for the labels. Um, I, and I, I know in my before, when I was on your um, podcast talking about the assessment process, I actually don't read intake forms. I actually don't even want to know what's going on um, mm. so that I'm coming with an open mind. I am looking at, you know, autism is a little bit different because obviously I do have to start um, looking at things for sure to, to implement into my assessment process. But the first time I meet a kiddo, I want to come in with a, a clean slate, not even knowing what's going on, because we are very easily biased. And even though we are professionals, it can be really easy to, to fall into, you know, confirmation bias. Um, sure. So just asking, you know, parents and teachers, um, looking at areas just across all of the different dimensions. I know it can get overwhelming, but it's really important that we're looking at all areas. So a wide range of things, looking for the patterns. That's what I'm looking for. It's not a symptom count. It's looking for the patterns of differences from what we would expect developmentally. So taking that normal curve, what is deviating from that across a lot of different dimensions, right? So that's going to be really important. Uh, I, I, It's really important too, as best as we can, getting information from when they were babies, from that infancy, because before they start learning skills, I mean, I don't know about you, but I have parents who are like, we taught this kid eye contact. We were always teaching them eye contact. So now it looks beautiful, right? So when they're babies, they haven't learned skills. They haven't learned to mask. They haven't learned those coping strategies. So asking questions, what were they like as a baby? Were they totally Mm -hmm. engaging and smiling and laughing and happy? And would they follow you around the room as you walked around the room? Or if they saw a cat for the first time, would they look Mm -hmm. back at you and be like, what is this? Am I safe? Right? So you want to get those. So getting them to watch videos again, or I, I have them send me lots of videos from baby toddler years, preschool, kindergarten, like give me a little clip it so I can see some of that. So any historical data that we can get on eye contact and that engagement can be really helpful. Um, A lot of the questions they do uh, cover in the ADI is still really important. Um, I'm often prepping parents too, so that they know when we go into the interview, the kinds of things that I'm going to be looking for. So look for them to watch videos and to look at pictures just to help them get their head wrapped around. Okay. You know, I, I want to come in because oftentimes they'll be like, Oh, I can't really remember. Well, it's hard to get really mm-hmm. thick, rich details if, if they don't know. Right. And if mm. they don't know, then I'm say I give them homework. Okay, I want to set up these different situations. So I want you to ignore them. You know, maybe mm-hmm. they're like, hey, dad, dad, 
-hmm. that how do they get your attention, right? Are they changing their strategy? Are they coming? Are they looking at you? Or are they just sitting where they are yelling, right? So giving them different things um, for homework too, if if they don't know, can be really helpful. Um, So we definitely want to hear all of those different clues that we can. And I, 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 one clue that I really listen to is the yeah, but. So they might say he talked late, but yeah, but his sister always talked for him. So it was probably just that, right? Or um, yeah, um, can play great with sister. So no, no, imaginative play, the play looks fantastic with his sister. You know, mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. other kids, though, it all starts to falls apart. So if they try to explain away a challenge that their kiddo has with the yeah, but those are some clues that we really want to, to to look into. We can't just take the kid that comes into our office at face value. We got to look globally elsewhere. Right. And so how are they presenting in different situations? Um, how are they when they're comfortable versus when there's some demands put on them? some stressors put on them in a fast-paced environment, right? Uh, Even within our testing, though, you might see some differences. So social skills, I find cognitive testing, they usually do awesome. They look great. They're engaging, right? Because we're doing these academic-y sort of predictable types of tasks. I mean, they don't know necessarily what they are. Um, I I always do play dates. I don't ever just see them with me because a lot of our kids look great with adults, but it all falls apart when they're with same age peers. And so I'll get videotapes of play dates, but I'll also bring in new peers into the office and have a play date. So now there's an unfamiliar peer here. Um, Sometimes if I'm doing assessments with a couple of kids, I'll bring in a couple of them bring them together. It's Mm -hmm. really interesting, actually, because I was doing um, three and I brought all three girls in. So I had one neurotypical girl and all the other three. So she was the fourth neurotypical girl. And then three who were all I was looking at autism and I could almost right away pick out, oh, my gosh, you are ADHD for sure. Oh, my gosh, I can see the autism now. It's so I get them to do improv kinds of things. So this Mm -hmm. is where we're thinking outside the box, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I had them do improv game. Oh, my gosh, it was so interesting to see Mm -hmm. the differences. Um, But but those little pieces that I wouldn't have gotten otherwise, the social referencing, me social referencing each other, you know, Mm -hmm. or like all of the it's quite it's quite interesting. Um, Could I ask more about that? That's yeah. That's a really um, that's that's interesting to me. Certainly, this whole process. So, I, I mean, I I think about logistics a lot, and I'm just curious how you set this up. Like, do you purposefully schedule kids on the same day? And I imagine there's a psychometrist involved if you're somehow seeing like three kids at once. Um, oh, not all you... at the same time yet. Okay. I'll okay. Get yeah. Yeah. I just have so many questions about how this actually plays out and like, do parents give consent for their kids to meet other kids there? You know, I could see privacy stuff. Like how, yeah. how, how do, how do you set all of this up? This is Yeah. So I don't come into it saying, oh, I'm doing these three. Let's no, no. It's it's after I've already seen them. I've already done my testing, but I want to now see them with other kids. Mm-hmm. So with with these three girls, I wasn't seeing them at the exact same time. It's just mm-hmm. over like right now they're going through the process. And I usually mm-hmm. see them over, I don't see them in one day. Like I usually see mm-hmm. them over three different sessions. Okay. But one, once I go through my pieces, 
um, then I will look at the opportunity to either have parents. I mean, that's usually what I do is have parents videotape their kiddo in a play date with other kiddos. That's Mm -hmm. usually what I try Mm -hmm. to do. But if I've got kids around the same age, um, then I'll ask permission and, and I'll say, Hey, I've got Friday morning open at 10. Um, this is my idea you know, and then I get written Mm. permission for parents to do that. So some certainly will say, no, don't want to do it. Totally fine. My justification is I just want to see them with other children and new children, because even if I get a video of them with them, their sibling or with a play date, it's probably kids that they know that they're familiar with who have similar interests. Right. Right. And, 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 and oftentimes, you know, and it's snippets. I don't get to see like a whole play date. Parents will only do that. So that's the logistics. It's just say, saying, hey, this is another opportunity for me to see your kiddo in a different context with with different children. If you're interested, let me know. Here's a consent form for that. Okay. Um, and, and making sure like privacy, no other children's names are ever um, shared or anything. And I let them play. So I just get to sit back and I'm an observer writing. Um, I'll set up different things Um, I usually have them start with something easy, like a board game. Usually, you know, it's pretty good, but I get to see what their turn taking likes is like if they're looking at each other, you know, during different. So I start with something easy. Um, But then at one point, especially with my girls, I'll take any games away. And they have to come up with their own. So who's taking the lead? The neurotypicals, I usually say, don't say anything. Like you're a follower. So I usually coach them because oftentimes if I don't do that, they will just pick up and mm-hmm. take, o- mm-hmm. take over, right? Yes. Um, or or the bossy ADHDers will too sometimes. But um, so I'll coach. And if I see one kiddo always taking over, I will step in and say, hey, I just want, this is your role for the next activity. Um and then the improv, the improv, I'm a little bit more engaged because I'm kind of setting up the activity for them that way. So hmm. great. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for digging into that. Let's so it's, it's all qualitative information, right? It's all, it, I really want as much qualitative information as I can get. We need quantity and quality, right? It's not just a simple symptom count um, because I mean, there's so many problems and I'll be getting into some of the to- tools. Um we got to make sure to, you know, again, this is getting really thick. So parents will say, oh, they're so generous. They're so good at sharing, right? But we got to think, are they really truly thinking about the other person? Or is it a rule? If I have a cookie, I must give my sibling a cookie. And so therefore, I must share. So they might always be sharing. But is it because of fairness? Or is it because of I genuinely want you to have this cookie so we can share this moment together, right? Mm -hmm. So it's looking at those things. Um, If they comfort, if they're comforting their little sibling who's freaking out crying, is it because they're actually like, oh, my gosh, I want you to feel better? Or is it, oh, my gosh you are so loud and it's overwhelming. I want you to be quiet. Right. So looking, yeah, exactly. So it's looking at all of those types of things, you know, can they respond appropriately if someone is very obviously mad at them because they're yelling at them, but have no idea if someone's disappointed, right. Or if they just hurt somebody's feelings Um, in conversation, you know, are they talking about things only that they're interested in what would happen if you start talking about something that you're interested in right so it's it's really looking I think parents are like yeah they can totally have a conversation 
okay, but what if you started talking about your day? And I will ask them, like, do do your kids ask you about your day? Because neurotypical kids do. How was your day, daddy? Right? And and do they do that? You know, Mm -hmm. like, so, Mm -hmm. so I don't think they realize the clinical significance, like, oh, yeah, they can totally engage, but, but about what? And is it Mm -hmm. about a few couple of things that they have experience with? Or can they really have that flexibility with lots of different things? So, you know, experience is so important. When when we're looking at how do we conceptualize ADHD, how do we conceptual conceptualize autism? Um, really, it, it's experience, and we have to interpret the information correctly. It's not a symptom count; it's about interpreting the information well, because a lot of the typical you know gold standard tools that we use to follow, they follow the DSM, but not actually what autism looks like they're not following autism, right? It's just about, do you meet these criteria? And that's that diagnosis sort of centered approach. Um, And so we know, yes, there's those classic symptoms, like our, you know, all our red flags, the reduced eye contact, the peering out of the side of their eyes, you know, all of those kinds of things, but we got to look at those pink flags too. um, And look at the splinter skills, how, how they might be brilliant. Like I had one kiddo brilliant with aquatic animals could name every, and even doing, I think it was the EVT, um, with them. And he told me not just that it was a pelican, but the exact kind of pelican or whatever animal, you know, that was in there. So, but then can't label a spoon, right? So that's another example of some of those, those, um, splinter skills. So we, we just got to look, you know, dig a little deeper. If we do see some of those, um, pink flags, how things are, are, are manifesting, um, looking at the attention, everything that I've already talked about, I think I have already, you know, um, the emotional reciprocity, is it because of inattention or because they actually don't really know, right? So all, everything that I've already kind of talked about. Um, so yeah, we're screening for both. Now, when we're looking at the assessment, we already know all the basic things. We can't rely on one person, one tool, right? Um, none of the assessment tools are great anyways, if we use them on our own, I think I could do another episode, just picking apart all the different assessment tools. Um, I I am going to talk a little about specific instruments and how we can modify them and and look at them. Um, but I can't dig into all of them. I'll just talk, you know, sort of briefly. Um, I do always use autism screeners, right? You know, if we want to look at both, that's really important. Uh, I often use them as part of the interview, especially if I've got my teenage girls or adults, um, because it can be really hard to interpret some of those questions and we can never take a score at face value. And I actually don't ever look at the score at first. I'm looking at their their actual individual items on everything that they just to see how they're responding. Um, because if we're just focusing on the score, we're at a huge risk for misdiagnosis. And I get so much valuable information anyways from those, those individual items. Um, but it's really easy for them to misinterpret things because we in almost all of those rating scales, they're using neurotypical language that can be really hard for an autistic brain, for example, to understand. And maybe they don't respond the same reason for the same reason what how we intended. So, you know, one of the popular questions is I can't put myself into somebody else's shoes. So they might, (laughs) right. So they might, right. You take that literally. That's very, 
exactly. Hard to answer, right? Exactly. Yeah. Like, well, what shoe size do they wear? Are they a nine? Because I'm a nine. So I could put myself into their shoes if they're a nine, but I wouldn't be able to if it was an eight, right? And so I really like using it as a, an interview. Um, and so I, I see a huge amount of our ADHDers too over identifying with symptoms of autism. And so that's why I like, again, to really pick it apart. Um, Oftentimes they're over-identifying because of how, how demanding it is to live with ADHD and all the executive functioning deficits mm. they have. So they're more likely to respond high on, on different sort of self-report questionnaires. Um, and so, you know, even with others responding, they'll see those deficits and they still come out high, like on an autistic scale. So we got to be really careful. And a lot of those instruments, um, they don't differentiate differentiate between ADHD and autism, right? So a lot of our ADHDers do, like on the BASC or CBRS, almost all of them are autistic based on those, right? Um, and when we look at the SRS, the social responsiveness scale, it's more about the behavioral pieces than the social behaviors. And so it's not great, right? ADHDers um, will look autistic on things like that. They probably won't look autistic on like a CARS or a Gilliam uh, Asperger's sort of rating scales, but it doesn't capture their internal experiences either. Um, I do love the autism quotient because it it really looks at how it feels to be autistic. Um, the cat cue, I know you've talked about some of these things on your, on your podcast before. That's great for masking. And again, those are things that I really use as an interview to, to get into some of that. Um, repetitive behaviors questionnaire, that can be useful to look at the repetitive behaviors for adults. And I do modify some of those in my interviews to ask for parents with children and teens as well. I love the RADS. Mm. Um, I think that that's really good. I give it to all my teens. I give it to my adults. Sometimes I'll give it to parents as well. Just like pretend you're your child. And um, I don't have as many false positives that I see mm. with ADHD with other rating skills. So I really like that one. Mm. Um, the social communication questionnaire, it's essentially an abbreviated ADI anyways, right? right. So um, it might be okay if a kiddo's, if a parent's bringing a kiddo in for ADHD, um, if we're going to use it as a screen for autism, but if they're already wondering about autism, it's not going to be great for differential diagnosis. Um, and again, I mean, I could go into all sorts of other comorbidities because it's a problem. You know, if we've got lower IQ kiddos, for example, it's not... The, that rating scale, it's not good for um, younger kiddos or older kiddos or adults. It actually misses a lot of them. So, mm -hmm. you know, if we are using something like that, we want to just change the cutoff scores. Even with the RADS, I changed the cutoff scores a little bit more because we don't want to have too many false positives or, or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just starting to use, I don't know if you've heard about this one or used it, but the alexithymia questionnaire. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm what do you starting, think of that? I'm I'm starting. Yeah, I I'm I'm just starting to incorporate it. It's pretty good. Um, so that inability to recognize our own emotions, which we, is common amongst our autistics, um, it is true for ADHD too. But I do find it with the autistic uh, population a little bit more. So I do like that one. Um, Atwood's girls questionnaire, it reflects the girls presentation of, you know, all the different areas, the play, the masking, the sensory sensitivities, all of those kinds of things. So I think that, you know, it's, it's looking at 
what is out there? How is this kiddo presenting? You know, you can't just say this is my battery for every child because it's going to be different. I, I wouldn't need to do all the cat cue if I've got a classically stereotypical boy who's coming in, you know, like, so it's really individualizing. And we know that we need to individualize for everybody as well. Um, and same thing, if we we're bringing in a kiddo um, for autism, we still want to screen for ADHD. So there's those ADHD screeners that, that need to be part of it for adults, the ASRS. I mean, I, some of those freebie mm-hmm. ones can actually be pretty good. The Waste Functional Impairment Scale, Wender Utah ADHD Rating Scale. Um, I do like Connors and CBRS. I really don't like the Basque. So those are my go-to there, but there are freebies like the Vanderbilt ADHD scales and other freebie as well. Once we get to the behavioral observation piece, um, it's hard to solely rely on the ADOS. And I know you've talked about the ADOS lots on your podcast. And I think a lot of us knew, know some of the um, holes in it here. I don't know what it's like there, but here you really do still need to do an ADOS and an ADI mm-hmm. for funding mm-hmm. agencies to recognize mm-hmm. the diagnosis. And if you don't sure. use those, they'll be like, mm, is it really autism or is it really not autism? <laughs> so I still use it. Um Definitely picks up autism better in men, obviously. That's primarily what the samples were developed, you know, that tool was developed off them. So that makes sense. And there is sort of a typical male phenotype of autism, but it excludes the girls. Um, so we we can use it, but we have to understand that this is where that interpretation becomes really important. We have to be able to know you know, are they looking good to appear normal? Are they acting good, right? Faking good because we can't observe the autism. And so the ADOS really isn't good at differentiating. I'll do it, but it's not good at differentiating neurodevelopmental disorders. It's great maybe for differentiating from neurotypicals, but not between ADHD. So we get a lot of false positives, especially when you have someone who's not very experienced and doesn't know the full range of what neurodevelopmental conditions look like, or even how anxiety and depression can manifest as well. So it's all... You know, it's just that piece in an ADHD DCD kid can look a lot like autism. So it's knowing what that range looks like um, and knowing this is just one snapshot in time, you know, one 40 minutes or one hour that we're doing. Um, So it's really for me, I love the using the ADOS for the qualitative information, right? So there's lots of things that I use the ADOS to explore. Um, There is a lot of overlap with the ADOS and MIGDIS. I love the MIGDIS as Mm -hmm. well. Um, And especially, you know, I I love bringing in the sensory materials. It's so fascinating, especially with my women, right? I'm like, you're looking fantastic. And then I bring out sensory stuff and it's like, oh my goodness, you know, like I can see some of the stimmy sort of things happening. Um, But I'm never hanging my hat on any one score, right, for a final Mm -hmm. diagnosis, because a lot of the scores, I mean, it could be anxiety, it could be social Mm -hmm. inhibition, there could be so many different things. Um, And so even things that we need to look at, so on the ADOS module one, for example, if you've got a kiddo um, who doesn't do great, who scores high on module one, it could also be communication disorder, right? Module two, it could be intellectual disability or ADHD. For module three, it could be ADHD or, um, you know, maybe it's you're missing the repetitive behavior. So it could look ADHD or, or sorry, it could look autistic, but be ADHD, or we could miss the autism because it's not capturing those repetitive behaviors that we would see, you know, in the module four, because there's not a lot of opportunities. It's a lot more interview. 
Um, and so there's lots of things to think about. With the ADI, again, it doesn't capture the female presentation, right? So the female differences in social communication disorders or the restricted behavior section, um, because it, it just looks a little bit different. Um, ADHDers can score really high on the ADI if they also have anxiety. So again, we got to really dig deep here, right? Um, we know the ADI isn't great for young kids either. So it's just, it's, it's about using these, but going in with a grain of salt, knowing what to look for, knowing how we're going to interpret these things. So it's not about specific observable behaviors, um, unless there's obvious flags, right? Whatever instrument we use is we have to get at those personal experiences because what we see on the outside is not necessarily what's actually happening on the inside, especially for our older kiddos and for our girls, right? Um, and so that's why like the rating scale, so we can really just talk about it, you know, as an interview, it's just getting behind the mask. That's what we need to do, especially with our girls, right? It's getting behind that mask as much as we can. Um, so listening for stories, right? That they don't fit in, um, that they don't, they don't feel like they're born on this planet, right? They're, mm. they, they feel like they're on a different planet. Um, that I, I love reading fiction and creating my own worlds because there I feel safe. Right. And there it's predictable. And there I don't feel lonely. Right. There's all of these kinds of things. So um we, we need to look at those. I do ask directly about a lot of things. Like I ask about learned strategies. And that's the cat cue is really good at that, digging into some of that. Right. And and I think we all have masking moments, even neurotypical people. Like oh, sure. and, and, and you know, we'll have a meeting and we'll be like, oh my gosh did I just say that? Was it okay that I just said that? Right. But for the autistic person, it's every single conversation, right? Questioning, how do I hold myself? Where am I in position with the other person? What, what about what I'm wearing? Is this appropriate? Um, how, how I'm talking, the words that I'm saying, where do I put my hands? Right. How should I respond to this? All of that, all the time they're thinking, 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 um, how can I escape if I do get anxious or if I, if things start going sideways? What is my cover story going to be if I have to run away, right? So it's all about asking how much effort it's going into any one sort of uh, experience that they have. Um, so I'm just asking them flat out. I'm asking them flat out about their eye contact, right? Their first reaction is usually the answer that I'm looking for. It doesn't necessarily matter what they say. It's just how they react, so when I say, and there's been times I'm like, are you actually looking at me or where are you looking right now? Cause I can't tell. Cause they might be looking at my forehead or just a lot of the girls will look just past me. And what does it feel like if you do look at me? Right. So ask him, let's chat about that. An ADHD girl will be like, what are you talking about? They've never thought about it before, but my autistic girls, I find really do. They have a different experience. Um, I had one who, this was a young female. So in her early twenties who had an algorithm. So she would count for 20 seconds. And so there'd be 20 seconds between every blink. And then there would be so many seconds between how often she looked away. So it's not like mm. she was staring intently. Oh my gosh, how effortful is that to try to pay attention to whoever's talking plus counting in your head to remember and to remember what eye pattern you're using, right? So the, the, she's really thought about it. Um, I worked with a woman fairly recently, too, who described eye contact as though she was standing in front of someone naked. It's that discomfort. That's what it felt like, right? And so 
it's it's looking at those experiences. Not everyone will have an experience, but it's important to look at um, common sense things. You know, I, I hate using the word, like I said, weird. I hate using it. I hate using the word context blind, but it is this insensitivity, insensitivity to context that's so obvious. So for example, if I said, Kate, Jeremy, let's go for drinks for Friday. And you're like, yeah, sure. Great. And I say, Kate, cool. I'll pick you up at nine. Awesome. Done. Right. Autistic person would say morning or night. Mm. Right. And so that's just a really simple example of that sort of context piece. Um, And I see it all the time. Right. I was just working with a kiddo um, not too long ago. I I mean, the clarification, what do you mean? It all depends. Every question is, what do you mean? It it depends. Am I with my mom? Am I at home? Am I with my teacher? Um, And he like this one kiddo, literally everything that came out of my mouth, he was clarifying. And I said, what's your favorite class? And he's like, what do you mean? I'm only in one class. Like, but he was thinking the classroom, right? And then later on, he's like, did you mean subjects? Right? So just not thinking about, so everything depended on something else because the context isn't clear. And I see that for, I mean, he was to an extreme with everything. No context was clear at all, but for a lot of people that could be really challenging. Um, And so just everything, it was clarifying, clarifying, clarifying. Um, I asked one woman about, um, and this is now a standard question that I ask about, is how she knows how to text. This was a few years ago because she was getting stressed. Someone had texted her and she's getting stressed out about, do I respond now? And I said, well, how do you figure out how you respond to texts? And so it's mm-hmm. been amazing. I've I've actually asked this question as part of my standard battery is how do you know? And it's fascinating to hear like some people like my ADHD years are like uh right away like as soon as I get it but some track right down to the minute so they have algorithms for different people so and based on relationships this was the most intricate so if it was a co-worker versus a casual friend that I've gone out mm. one once or twice with versus someone mm-hmm. that I like and so had, had made algorithms based on how the other person was responding to their text And so created this sort of grid on, okay, for this person or this kind of relationship, you you wait two hours. For this kind of relationship, you might wait two days, right? I didn't know the intricate, but just creating all of these algorithms to try to figure out social context. But it's really hard because there's so many rules, you know, how I present with you, Jeremy, today is going to be different than how I present, you know, with a person that I'm meeting for the first time in person versus a boss in an interview. And it could even be like, you know, with my grandma, this is how I present with grandma, but it changes from one minute to the next. Maybe she just got off the phone with and had really bad news. And now the whole context, the whole scenario has changed. And now I don't know how to respond. There's just so much. It's just so exhausting. Um, And so, you know, our brain, we've got, there's a great book actually. I think it's called the influence of psychology. And he talks about the shortcuts that we have in our brains to help us process information and how to make decisions, right? And there's context. Um, and and it, it helps us figure out really complex situations and ambiguous situations really quickly. So we've got these shortcuts. And I think a lot of autistic people don't have those little shortcuts, right? They actually do have to think of every sort of situation. So just as a really simple example is um, he talks at the beginning of the book about turkeys. So mother turkeys 
Um, as long as her little baby goes cheap, cheap, she will take in that little baby and protect it. Mm-hmm. And so they had mole cats, um, stuffed mole cats. They put one in to the a mole cat into just a stuffed one into their little lair. I don't know their den, and the turkey mom attacked it right away. But then the researchers put a little tape recorder in this mole cat, exact same mole cat, but it said cheap, cheap. And the turkey actually took it in. So that cheap, cheap was that shortcut. I don't have to think about the length and the size and the color and the shape and the smell. It's just cheap, cheap, automatic. I'm going to take it in. And so it, it, it's 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 that, right? I actually, um, my daughter was just talking about the Truman Show the other day. And I'm like, that's maybe kind of what autism is. Everybody else has the script. Everybody else knows their position. They know what they're supposed to say and do. But the autistic person is coming in and it's like they don't have the script and they're trying to ad lib and they're trying to figure things out and figure out what's going on. And I think for a lot of them, that's what the world feels like. And so it's getting at that experience, right? And, you know, how do you figure out the rules? You know, when everybody's got a script, how do you figure that out? So it's just looking to at little things that come up spontaneously. Um, I remember like a lot of my, I've got elephants everywhere in my office and a lot of my ADHD kids, neurotypical kids like, wow, you must really like elephants. (laughs) Right. That's it. So my autistic kiddos though, will say, oh, you've got 22 elephants in here. Right. So little things, really little subtle things that we're just taking all of that. It's just, they were the matter of fact, right. It's not the social component. So I'm always looking for those little spontaneous things that come up as well. Um, I love doing optical illusions. So these are some of the extra things that I'm adding into my assessment process um, just to see how they respond. So if you have um, like one is uh, there's two cups, one, it looks way bigger and one looks way smaller but they're both exactly the same size. It's just the different perspective, right? Um, The ADHD are usually enjoys this. Like, this is awesome. Like they find it really stimulating. They, they might have some questions, but not like the autistic kiddos who are like, um, no, that's not true. I can clearly see that if we get a, you know, a ruler, this one is going to measure very differently, you know, like they just want to get into the logistics and argument of it. Right. Um, I'll ask questions too. Are, are dinosaurs extinct? And I've actually stopped asking this one because it just drives me nuts <laughs> now. But because the autistic yeah, kiddos will tell me all the reasons why I'm actually wrong when I say, no, they're not extinct because birds are still. And then they will go into all the factual information about the lineage or whatever, right? So, um, it, it, and, and oftentimes it's just hard for them to really answer. ADHDers will just go with the automatic. That one looks bigger. It's really hard for the autistic. It all depends. They might go deep, right? And and it depends on like they just get too logical with it. So I like throwing those pieces in as well. Um, yeah, and and just those kinds of questions. The dinosaur one I've dropped though because I can get into like five hour discussions with kids about it. Um, yeah, that's but, a dangerous one. Yeah. 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 So just fun little things that we add on to the different kinds of things too. Um, I do, I know this is another tool that you use as well, or have talked about on your podcast. I don't know if you use it, but you've talked about it. Um, the social language development test. 
Mm. Uh, I use that for additional information. It can be lengthy, so I don't necessarily use it all all, all the way through. For some, I do, um, but it's all about how they're interacting things. I also bring in some of my own pictures because when we look at eye tracking research, um, our autistic kiddos can actually look at one, like one person in a picture and respond to whatever question we have pretty good, right? They look, even if it's a social situation, but if they add more people, more than one person into a picture, now it gets really complex. And so I like to show, show some socially complex pictures because they're not as likely to pay attention because it's harder for them to know what's the important information to look at here. Um, And so, you know, I think that looking at those different things can be helpful. And even how people are feeling, they can almost identify how they're feeling happy or sad. But as soon as someone's got what looks like a smile, but it could be discussed, you know, they'll say, oh, he's happy. Well, why is he happy? And they just, they have a hard time looking at context. And one of the pictures, the girl is clearly scared. She's down a dark mm. alley and she's clearly scared. And it's, oh, she's excited. Not looking at the bigger picture, just looking at one aspect of the face, maybe the eye, the wide eyes, right? Oh, she's excited. And so just missing on some of those details, it can be, it's again, it's just all that qualitative information. Mm-hmm. Um, we just can't um, take everything at face value, right? It's really understanding, getting some of their explanation. Um, one thing that I do want to say is if you are looking at ADHD and autism, you can't count the same symptom across both. So if sensory processing, and I think that's common sense, but I don't know if everybody necessarily does that. So um, they have to be independent. And so if you're going to use sensory processing as a hit, you can't use it for both ADHD and autism. You got to use it for one or the other and justify your decision, right? For why you're making it. Um, And so if we're, we're rating a restless, repetitive leg movement, that jiggle, if we're rating it for ADHD, for hyperactivity, we can't also use it for repetitive for autism. So um, adaptive functioning, I think we all know that we need to really be looking at adaptive functioning. Um, That's important. I know we're running out of time, feedback and recommendations. I had a whole other section on that. But I think the biggest thing is, um, you know, maybe going back to the previous episodes, not from last week, but Um, just around the assessment process Mm -hmm. about how to bring along parents, right? Mm -hmm. We need to make sure they take up the information, whatever information that they give. So I let them know through the process what I'm seeing. I'm not leaving the big reveal to the end because they're going to be so overwhelmed with emotion. And so by the end, that feedback meeting, it's really about, we already know what's going on. Now let's get into the recommendations. And so uh, we really want to make sure because they'll hold a brave face, right? They'll be so brave and hold it all in. Maybe there'll be some tears, but it's so hard to process any, any information. And so the biggest thing is if we've really gotten that qualitative information, we've really taken the time to figure out what's going on. They're feeling better because they're feeling heard. They feel like you haven't done a rush job. You know, you've, you've heard my story. And now we can use that information to say, okay, this is how I'm justifying, you know, so autism, because, hey, remember when you told me this story, 
now we can start explaining those everyday experiences that they've had. We don't want to broadly say this is what autism is. And and so they have difficulties with social communication and repetitive behaviors. It's going into those little details that parents have already told us so they can really understand their kiddo, right? And that's helpful because oftentimes we have we all have one picture of what an ADHD kid or a Rain Man autistic kid would look like. And they're like, that's not my kid. And so we're using their information to show them it is a spectrum, right? It is so different from one child to the next. And so it's this collaboration and 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 checking in. Does this make sense to you? How do you see this play out in everyday behavior, right? What do you notice? So it's a, a lot of those kinds of things. Um just getting down, um, I think it's important just to talk about prognosis because I think parents will ask about mm-hmm. what does this mean for my kid for the future? Will yeah. my kid go to college? Will they get married? Will they have a family? Can they live on their own? It's really hard to answer, right? And I and I yeah. talk about that, and, and especially with younger kiddos, and especially if there's cognitive delays. So talking about broadly the prognosis with supports, you know, we we see better outcomes with kiddos who have this supportive environment and, and are working on these skills, um, but never any hard and fast. Yes, they will go to college. We can never give that kind of profile. But, you know, based on your kiddo's strengths, that these are some of the things that I can see, you know, if we continue working on these skills and, you know, intervention looks different when they start at two or three versus 18, you know, depending on when you're coming in for this. So uh, looking at what will support their success, I can't give them the outcome, but what are the, the things that we can do to optimize their success? That's kind of what I'm focusing on. Yeah. Um. Man, I mean, there's so much, Jeremy. There's so much. I I yeah. tried to stay on schedule, but I just ran out, so we didn't get into recommendations. But um, I think that gives you kind of a big, broad overview of at least what to look for, sort of in the assessment. Yeah, yeah. No, I think this is a great job over these past couple episodes, trying to pull together a pretty complex topic and diving deep enough. I think there's lots to take away from each of these episodes and things that folks can put into practice right away um, without being overwhelming. You know? Yeah. I think yeah. you struck the balance and there's always more. There's always more. Right. There always is. Yeah. And that's why I've got, I do have the training. Actually, I'll, I'll send you a coupon code if anybody wants to for sure. 25% off, 25% off the training. Um, and then we d- can deep dive into all of this a little bit more because this is just the surface, but at least things yeah. to start thinking about that we can, you know, one, one little thing that we can tweak in our assessment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the name of the game. Well, uh, appreciate again, you know, you've done two double episodes now, uh, on these different topics and I'm just really grateful that you took the time to come and share all of this with us. Um, it's such an important topic to dive into and fits really well. I've done a lot of differential diagnostic episodes here lately. And I think that's, you know, as things get more complex and we see these tougher cases, that's, you know, it's really important. So <laughs> thank you. Thank well, you, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely.